brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shini Somara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on Razor, we learn how analyzing sewage could be vital to controlling COVID-19. What we can do with this technology, it's now, it's actually fighting the current epidemic and also prepare for the future. That sounds like a bit of foul play, Emma. (laughs) Straight in with the dad joke. (laughs) So... Wearing a mask to stop the transmission of COVID-19 has become pretty controversial in some countries. Now, there are some people believe that they don't work or that wearing one is an infringement of your rights. But maybe we could convince them otherwise if there was evidence that we could possibly avoid future lockdowns and go back to what almost normality if more people wore them. So I saw this article about research being done by Dr. Monica Gandhi, and she's an infectious disease physician at the University of California in San Francisco. And so this week I gave her a call and I interviewed her for Razor. And she's co-authored a paper that has assessed hundreds of different studies around the severity of the disease of of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that masks may be the factor that led to people getting less of the virus and therefore suffering less severe symptoms. In the 1918 pandemic, the second of the influenza pandemic, the second wave of the pandemic during World War One, where people were more crowded, was actually accompanied by a higher mortality rate, which was very surprising. And this was a PLOS One article that was published in 2010. If we think about this particular pandemic, healthcare workers, before we started universally masking, were getting a lot more ill. People in food processing plants, before we knew to just get that mask on, we're getting a lot more ill. So it's more anecdotal, but we have been universally masking as healthcare workers since mid-March. And we have seen luckily and gratefully very few symptomatic or severe illness among healthcare workers since that universal masking occurred. So it keeps on gathering the evidence that's putting together that if if you're thinking about masking as a pillar of pandemic control, facial masking, we are trying to say that we're gathering one more bit of evidence that could convince people to mask, not just that it reduces transmission to others and to yourself, but that if you do happen to get the infection, that you're less likely to get severe disease. And that gives it more credence and it can convince people more because we're asking people to do a big thing, universally facial mask in public for a whole year maybe, or until we get to an effective vaccine. That is a long time to ask. And the more evidence that we can provide that this is useful, I think the better. Now, this is not about if masks work. They do. Uh, I know the public messaging around this has been pretty awful, but Dr. Gandhi says there's like 900 articles and counting that say masks work. So that's not what we're talking about here. Her hypothesis is around severity of disease. And by filtering virus droplets, therefore you lower the dose um, that you get of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, which is kind of the way that a a vaccination works, where an immune response will be triggered in the mask wearer after contact with a small dose, but not so much that it would cause serious illness. Now, this is a theory. It's observational evidence, because as Dr. Gandhi has said, it would be unethical to have half a city wear masks, the other half not, and then expose people to the virus. So that's not going to happen. 
So instead, they're studying three lines of evidence. They've got virology, epidemiology, and how countries have responded, which is a little bit clunky because obviously all countries have done lots of different things. But they will continue to gather this evidence um, that shows that this hypothesis is likely and hopefully convince people that way because it's certainly a large body of evidence building up. But this is not just about the severity of disease because their study also shows that masking increases the number of asymptomatic infections. And so that's one of the things, you know, that has been blowing scientists' minds around this virus, isn't it? That the, a high number of people are asymptomatic. So more asymptomatic people might increase the proportion of the population who achieve at least a short-term immunity, which buys us more time before the vaccine is produced, which is what this is all about. So I guess what I'm coming down to here is like, put a mask on people because it could mean that we get out of lockdown faster and get back to living our lives. I'm, I'm really curious as to why people don't wear masks because, you know, I mean, we on Razor, we've also done sort of films on the aerodynamics of COVID-19 around sort of like joggers and cyclists and how the virus propagates in air cabins and things like that. And it's clear that just by wearing a mask, it's the best thing you can do to protect yourself. You know, how effective certain masks are and whether you should wear a visor and all of that is secondary to the main point, which is that just, you know, wear a mask. It's it's that simple. I, I did actually see a, a um, an interview that Dr. Gandhi did with somebody and they were talking about why don't people wear masks. And, um, and she said, look, I think she said, rather than telling people that they're stupid um, and that, you know, they're not thinking of others or that they're selfish, she said that, you, you know, that's not the way to, to sort of convince people that, to maybe, you know, put a mask on. So what she's saying is that, you know, hopefully the, the weight of evidence, although I, I, I guess if you don't believe in science, you're not going to listen, but hopefully the weight of evidence to show that you're not only going to protect other people, you are will actually protect yourself, you'll protect your family. Um, and, you know, if you can get a, a lower dose of this virus, and then that's a lesser chance of sort of developing these, these severe symptoms. Not everybody develops them, but again, keep lowering those chances so yeah instead of telling people hey hey you idiot put a mask on instead hey look at this look at this evidence look at what's happening look at what's happening in the world you know america's having a, a terrible time with cases and severe symptoms and in countries like japan um singapore um they've got very low rates and and very low death rates as well is there a correlation between wearing a mask and being asymptomatic? Yeah, well, there's a really good example that Dr. Gandhi spoke about. Um, and she said that, you know, at the very beginning, there were a lot of cruise ship outbreaks. Remember, they were all, you know, off the coast and nobody would let them on the shores. And the Diamond Princess was the famous one. Um, that was that There was a rate of asymptomatic infection. So people sort of not having symptoms on there was about 40%. And um, and then on an Argentinian cruise ship outbreak, uh, they didn't let people off, but they said you can all have masks when there was an outbreak. And so they gave the passengers, the staff, everybody, all these, these masks. And after the outbreak was over, the rate of asymptomatic infection was about 81%. So it was twice as much as the original outbreaks. Now, again, that's just one sort of situation but it's a pretty powerful one because of course everybody's contained on these uh, on these um ships so yeah it would suggest that you know the people wearing masks it kept out more of the virus therefore there were more asymptomatic people so there weren't as many people who were developing sort of more severe symptoms <laughs> 
As we move toward the end of 2020, most of humanity is still battling the spread of the COVID-19 virus. That is so true. And on this podcast, we've covered a variety of stories detailing how science and technology is fighting back against the spread of the disease. So what do you have for us today, Shani? Well, a group of researchers have found that there were traces of COVID-19 in our sewer systems long before it was widely accepted that the disease was circulating throughout Europe. Sewers for COVID is a collaboration of researchers from Greece, Spain, the Netherlands and the UK, and they've all developed a system of wastewater surveillance to track the spread of COVID-19. Their prototype proves sewer surveillance could be an effective tool in the fight against COVID-19, and they're now looking into the feasibility of setting up a Europe-wide monitoring system. To find out more, I spoke to Professor Dragan Savage from the QWR Water Research Institute. We included the interview I did with Professor Savage in the latest TV episode of Razor, but we thought we'd share the full interview with you here. Enjoy. I'm really curious to hear about sewers for COVID. What problem were you trying to solve by developing this technology? The key problem is that we don't have enough testing capability to do that with individuals. Um, And this is the technology that will give us, uh, with one measurement, it could do the whole London or large city or portion of a city. So a larger population can be uh, kind of tested in a a way so that we can uh, track how the virus is um, developing in the population and um, just uh, very cheap technology, very quick. We're talking a day or two to get a sample and the results. And on top of that, we made a complete solution. So it's related to the cloud uh, storage. We're getting much wider information about the public, you know, vulnerable people, age profile uh, so that we can then look into who is um, at risk the most. There have been reports that COVID-19 was present in sewage long before we went into lockdown in Europe. When did your technology kick into action? Um, This was what you are referring to is when KWR uh, resampled or retested some of the samples from early February uh, and uh, they couldn't find any traces and then Uh, Early March, they found some traces and they were actually showing um, SARS-CoV-2 in the wastewater before it was detected in the population. And then the European uh, Commission came up with this uh, challenge, can you come up with solutions? And we participated in a 48 hours hackathon and we came with this solution, combining source surveillance with informatics side of things, artificial intelligence, machine learning, to link what was found in sewers to what's uh, found in the population so that we can find the best way uh, uh, to early warning system to how geographically this is developing so that we can find hotspots and where resources should be focused on. What impact will your technology have in terms of fighting COVID-19? It's um, multi-purpose, really. It could be an early warning uh, system to um, tell people prepare something is uh, happening. But it can also show, you know, when the um, graph shows the reduction in these uh, traces of RNA in wastewater, then we can decide when to stop the lockdown. 
and also how do we prepare? Uh, resources are always limited. So if we know which areas of the city or of the country are in most need for resources, then the decision makers can decide where to send the PPE or even human resource, where the doctors and nurses should be uh, focusing on. So it's not just about COVID-19 then, but also about what could be around the corner. Yes, um, we humans, um, you know, ingest uh, food, drinks, uh, everything else. And that is then um, creates biomarkers that we can then test from the wastewater. And because, you know, it collects it from large number of, of people, it will give us an average picture what is happening, not what is happening to you or me individually, which is also good. It protects our privacy, but gives us a better idea of, say, um, a large um, commercial building or a cruise ship or an airplane, um, an idea what is happening with a population that is gravitating to that sewer. If the technology has been around for a while, why did we not detect COVID-19 sooner? First of all, you know, there is, there is a bit of a yuck factor with sewers and um, only people who work with that get really excited, engineers um, talking about this type of infrastructure. So that could be one of the, um, one of the reasons. And also that there wasn't a sense of urgency because we humans tend to react to um, something that happens like the pandemic. Uh, so another example, you know, of a slow moving train towards a disaster is climate change. And we're not doing as much as we could, but just see what happened with COVID. We converted to digital communications, lots of organizations digitalized quickly because there was an urgent need to do something about it. And I think that difference between urgency and something that is slow, slowly developing uh, made it uh, not as attractive at the time as it is right now. Now it's time for what's exciting us in science this week. I found this story when everyone was kind of going out and we were having some really nice um, sunny weather and people were hitting the beaches and things like that. And it's a study that um, is suggesting that herring gulls pay attention to human gaze. And the reason why that's COVID related is because a lot of people that were on the beaches and sort of by the sea um, were noticing how you could change the behavior of herring gulls by staring at them. <laughs> Madeline Gumas and her colleagues from the Center of Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter recently found that these birds were taking longer to approach food when being watched by a human. And we're not just talking about being present and that's scaring these birds. It's specifically about eye contact, which is really bizarre because, I mean, they've set up this experiment and research project to measure how gulls react when humans are around them versus when humans actually stare at them. And there's a difference in the way they behave. It's just like a first date, isn't it? If you don't really like the person on the first date, if you just stare intently into their eyes, they get really uncomfortable and they move away really fast. <laughs> so why does this even matter? Well, believe it or not, this species is actually in decline in the UK. 
And so all of this research is to really get to the bottom of human-gull interactions, which they hope will contribute to the conservation efforts. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGT in Europe and then type in Razor. Until next time, bye. Welcome to the Alps, the greatest mountain range in Europe, known the world over as a top-class tourist attraction for its majestic peaks, incredible range of mountain sports, enchanting alpine villages, and its serene and mirror-clear lakes. The mountain range spans eight different countries, from France and Monaco in the west to Austria and Slovenia in the east, stretching 1,200 kilometers. I'm Johannes Blechberger. I grew up right in the Austrian Alps. The mountains have always been in the backdrop of my world and throughout my childhood and teens my playground. In this three-part podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey across the region, finding out about the remarkable wildlife we find here and meeting some of the people who make it their home. We're going to be looking at how climate change is affecting the people, landscape and wildlife of the Alps and how some of these changes are happening before our very eyes. The Alps, timeless and changing, online now at cgtn.com forward slash Europe.